Lakeisha Gunter, and you're listening to Roar, an energetic and enlightening weekly podcast that will help you achieve more. This weekly infusion of candid insights, indispensable lessons, inspiring stories, and success strategies for living your best life now will help you on your journey to making your dreams a reality. My experience as a Fortune 50 business and tech executive has led me to meet some pretty amazing people. On Roar, I share real talks with top executives, thought leaders, luminaries, authors, and entrepreneurs who are passionate about building the next generation of inspired, empowered, game-changing leaders. Are you ready to fear less and move into your dream life? Let's Roar! Welcome to Roar. I'm your host, Lakeisha Gunter. So what do I mean by Roar? The beauty of Roar is that it's both an acronym, and the acronym stands for Reflection, Opportunity, Action, and Relationships. And it's an action. We are all born with it, a hidden power inside of us. It's a fire that is often suppressed by fear. That power is your roar, and it's waiting to be unleashed. Today, I want to talk about the power of leadership communications and making communications matter, especially in this new era of COVID-19. Research indicates that there is a strong link between communication and effective leadership. I have often heard it said that communications is leadership, and leadership is communication. Communication is the one leadership quality that will make you or break you. For a leader, communication is connection and inspiration, not just transmission of information. Communication is especially critical for building alignment and executing strategy. Yet, it is often one of the most challenging leadership skills because it is so easy to say, but not so easy to do. Effective communication is far more than a one-way street that starts with the leader. Communication is the leader's information highway. It flows freely in both directions and in every circumstance, in good times and especially in challenging ones. The people with the best communication skills are gaining the most influence, the greatest followership, and have the rare ability to provide leadership amid chaos. My guest today, Daniel Cass, is masterful at leadership communications. Daniel is the co-founder and managing partner of High Lantern Group, a firm focused on business communications, strategic positioning, and thought leadership for executives. For nearly 20 years, Daniel has been an advisor to chief executives and senior officers of the world's largest and most influential companies in every major industry. He has worked directly with more than 100 chief executives and senior corporate officers to improve how they communicate and share strategic thinking. He has also worked with dozens of companies to define and expand their business narrative, helping them to tell an in-depth story about their businesses to customers, investors, and their own employees. Daniel is also the president of G100, a private group of chief executives who meet regularly to talk about strategy, operations, and people. I've had the pleasure of working with Daniel for over eight years in my numerous leadership roles in corporate America, and I've had the pleasure of sharing Daniel with every team that I've been a part of. He's provided phenomenal leadership communications training, and we have all benefited from it tremendously. I'm excited for you to hear from Daniel today on this very important topic. With that, let's welcome Daniel to the show. Welcome, Daniel. So glad to have you here with us today. 
Hey, Leticia, good to be with you. So, Daniel, before we get started talking about the power of leadership communications, I want to give my audience an opportunity to learn a little bit more about your background. So, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about your background, where you're from, and maybe who were some of your biggest influences growing up? I grew up in Toronto, went to the University of Toronto, and then after college, I moved to the United States for a job in New York. And I ended up staying in New York and staying in the United States, becoming a U.S. citizen. I went to graduate school worked in different jobs, including the U.S. government, and managed to live in Boston and New York and Washington, D.C., moved to the South and lived in Tennessee and now live in North Carolina, and had a consulting life that has allowed me to travel throughout the United States and all over the world, and that's been very rewarding. To answer the second part of your question, you know, I've been lucky that I've had a lot of great exposure to amazing leaders. But you ask me who influenced me? Well, first of all, really terrific leaders. But I also would tell you, as I look back, I had a professor in college who really emphasized reading slowly, not quickly. And I thought that professor had a big influence on me. And my first boss, the late Irving Kristol, was a great writer and editor. From him, I really learned how to write, which was clear, short sentences without a lot of fancy words and figure out what point you want to make. And that's something I still live with. Wow. I love that. Yeah. Thanks for sharing your journey and some of the key influences growing up. It certainly resonates with me as I've had the opportunity to work with you over the last few years or so, eight years or so in terms of what I've learned from you. So thank you for sharing that. So when you think back on your experiences growing up, that really shaped you into who you are today You know, maybe there is a defining moment that stands out. Can you talk a little bit about maybe what helped you find your roar? You know, it was a slow process. I always wanted to figure out, well, what would make this most interesting? And I remember I saw a talk by a guy who, this was in the late 90s, who was speaking to an audience of salesmen in New York. And this gentleman was actually the founder of an early internet company, and he was explaining to the audience why the internet was going to be important to your business, which today sounds like incomprehensible. But even in the late 90s, there were a lot of people still using fax machines and hadn't figured out what an online world would be like. And I saw him explain four ways that the internet was going to change your business. And it was so well constructed And so well-ordered, I still remember much of the speech today, and I thought, his skill is not being a technical guy. His skill is explaining something complicated to other people. So I kind of think that was really inspiring. Wow, I love that. Yeah, so he was able to to maybe simplify the complexity of the technology and make it very clear and, and easy for anyone to understand. And not only that, he explained whether you knew the technology or not. What he showed you was, here's how you ought to think about your business. Mm -hmm. He gave people a new framework for thinking. His name was Jay Walker. He was the founder of Priceline.com, and he's since gone on to found a number of other businesses still alive. I saw him speak a few years ago. He's just as good as he ever was. Wow. Thanks for sharing. I'm going to go look up some of his talks. (laughs) Well, speaking of that, right, that sounds like it was a very foundational and pivotal moment for you to to have an opportunity to listen to Jay. 
And let's talk about maybe kind of how that um, really was a just a, a segue into maybe your career. I like to talk about, you know, how that experience with Jay really helped you and set you on a path and course to do what you're doing today. Talk a little bit about, you know, your journey to moving into the communication space. And then I'd like you to maybe talk about how do you define communications? Yeah. So let me answer the first part. You know, I was a writer and I wrote articles about public affairs and public policy. And I wrote book reviews. I worked in government, and wrote speeches for people. And then I wrote a lot of public policy papers on education and drug policy. And what I realized was that when you write a speech or write a paper, it doesn't have to be elegantly written. We're not writing novels. What we're trying to do is organize a set of ideas, sometimes very complex ideas, and organize them in a way that somebody else can understand them. And for business writing, as opposed to prose writing or fiction writing or even history writing, business writing requires two things that it's clear, people understand it, and that it's compelling, people want to know more. And if you can just get those two things, It's an invaluable service to anybody in business. And that really forged in my mind a view of communications that's different than PR or speeches. It's about sharing an idea in a way that somebody remembers it and wants to engage with you. And for me, that has become the most essential skill in business. Love it. Love it. Clear and compelling. Absolutely. People should be leaning in and wanting more. Um, It's something you talk about often. So how do you define communications? Yeah. So it's funny. It took me a couple of years to figure this out, but I realized in most organizations, when you told people that you were going to help them with communications, they didn't really pay attention because they thought, well, that's PR. Those are press releases or product announcements or a speech at a podium or a press conference or maybe something a CEO does at a quarterly earnings call. But they would think, look, I'm in manufacturing, or I'm in sales, or I'm a technical analyst. I don't need anything about communications. Yet, in fact, what they do all day is share ideas. Mm -hmm. The communications I focus on are not PR, not public announcements. That's a part of it. But the far more important, and from my point of view, the far more interesting part, is how to explain an idea that is both complicated and engaging. It's an idea that somebody else wants to say, tell me more, or even I disagree, so that there's a debate or a discussion. To me, communications helps people spark that conversation, spark that discussion. And a leader at any part of an organization, HR, sales, leadership, even administration, need to be able to share ideas in, as I said earlier, a clear and compelling way. I love that. I mean, one of the things that, you know, you've shared with my teams um, over the years is the really the importance of communication when times are good and when times are chaotic, right? And I think right now we're in kind of that chaotic, uncertain space with COVID-19. And to your point, I think I read an article recently where you, you wrote and, and you articulated that every company right now is asking their leaders to step up communication. And that's so true, especially given this current changing landscape. Can you talk about maybe what are some examples of what companies can do to to enable their high potentials to be more effective communicators 
during this time. I just wanted to say, I think you've hit on something really important that we have discovered, and maybe some of us even knew this before COVID-19, but I've always believed it's an immutable law of business that bad communicators end up as failed leaders. We've all had bad bosses or ineffective bosses or worked in organizations where you've seen a leader who isn't that effective. Well, there are lots of reasons why people are ineffective, but I guarantee if they're a poor communicator, they're going to be a poor boss. They don't know how to share ideas. They don't know how to get people to follow them. They don't know how to get people excited to work there, which is a fundamental mandate of a good leader. So I think under the current conditions where we're working from home, working on Microsoft Teams or Zoom or any other virtual device, uh, virtual platform or collaborative software, we are communicating in a different way. I'll be the first to tell you, it's not as good as being face-to-face. Yeah, It's not as intimate as being in a room or at a conference, and we all miss that. But until we go back to that, people have to learn how to talk into a screen, talk into a phone, engage people without being just a few feet from them. And that's a real challenge, and I think it requires a different mindset. I totally agree. I mean, because... You know, we're on Zoom calls, we're on Microsoft Teams calls, as you say, gosh, in many cases, we're taking more meetings and less breaks in this virtual environment. So what advice do you have for people working from home and doing the video calls all day? How can we improve our communication skills and, you know, how can we improve our stamina at the same time? So first of all, I gave a pretty negative description of working from home and having to be on an online call all the time. But there's one silver lining for people like us. In the old world, we'd go to a meeting and there was a boss who sat at the head of the table. There's no head of the table anymore. Everybody's sitting in the same place. And if the boss isn't the best person leading that conversation, other people have an opportunity to step up and actually not take over the conversation, but help lead it in the right way. So my view is that this is actually an opportunity for the person with the best skills at sharing ideas, engaging others, listening to others, promoting other conversations, and taking things to a decision point. Those people, regardless of title, regardless of status, regardless of role, suddenly have an open advantage because they're better at leading a conversation. So that's why I think that skill is so important now. So you ask, what can they do? I have a whole bunch of advice, so maybe I'll start with a couple examples and we can go into it. I mean, I think the first one is time. We have less time now. The time in 24 hours a day, 60-minute meetings, that remains largely in place. But my view is it's very hard for somebody to listen to a 30- or 45-minute presentation, even if you've got great slides and great videos. Sometimes you'll have to do that. But I think your mindset has to change. As I said, it's a new way of thinking. And my general advice is think in 10-minute blocks. Think about what point you can make in 10 minutes. If you've got more than 10 minutes of material, you've got 30 minutes of material, think about three 10-minute blocks, each with a single point. Any point, in my view, can be made in 10 minutes. If you tell me it's too complicated or requires more explanation, 
then set up the conversation so you introduce it and then pause and ask people for questions to have a discussion about the main points. We no longer have the luxury of going from the beginning through the middle to the end. We can't do that anymore because nobody's got the time or attention or patience. So we've got to really think, what point am I trying to make? What problem am I trying to solve? And if you focus on those things and focus on smaller increments, can I get this idea across in 10 minutes? That's the start of being more effective. Wow, I love that, right? I mean, it really enables us to be very clear in our communications and be very targeted in our meetings, meaning being very focused, right? You know, we're constantly in front of that computer and how do we keep people engaged and involved? Just be clear, Um, really come in with the plan of what you want to accomplish. And now in that, right, I think I kind of hear it's important to prepare before the meeting to make sure that we've got the right messages and we're going to land them in those 10 minute increments. Any thoughts that you can give us around really how to prepare to have a successful meeting? Yeah. The first question you want to ask yourself is, what kind of meeting is this? Mm-hmm. Not all meetings are the same. Some meetings people go to because they expect it to be an update, a business update. That's the most common type of meeting. And that usually means, how did we do last quarter or last week or last month? It's an update on a subject people already know. And they're usually pretty short and direct and can come away with a few insights. But there are other meetings where the purpose is to have a strategy discussion. Sometimes the purpose of the meeting is to make a decision at the end of the meeting. Sometimes there's no decision. You simply want to educate people about a new idea. But I'm amazed at how many people walk into a meeting without actually understanding what is the purpose of this meeting and does everybody have the same idea? If the purpose of the meeting is to recommend a course of action and make a decision, you ought to say that in the first minute. I'm here today to recommend path A Mm -hmm. and reject path B and C. And I'm going to talk for this long. I'm going to give you my arguments for A. And then we'll have a set time to discuss why A is better than B and C. And at the end of it, you or the person who's the boss in the room, I'm going to ask you to make a decision so we can move forward. Sometimes nobody wants to make that decision And they might say, hey, well, hold on. This is just a discussion and background. Why are you forcing? Okay, that's fine. Then set up a discussion where people learn. So my short answer to that, after a long answer, is figure out what kind of meeting this is. Wow, that's super critical, right? Because the worst thing you can do is come into a meeting and people are confused as to why they're there and what the outcome should be. And I've been in quite a few of those, right? And so I think it's important as leaders that we truly understand and and are very clear and upfront. Um, To be honest with you, I've taken quite a few effective meetings classes because it's important to value leaders' time and to make sure they're very clear on the goals that you're trying to accomplish. And so thank you for articulating that. And so, you know, speaking of that, you've spent a lot of time working with senior executives, you know, over the years and helping them and their strategy and their leadership communications. You know, what are some key things or key lessons that you can share with us around just how you've helped them become better communicators over the years? So the first question I always ask people is, what problem are you trying to solve? And I'm always somewhat amused, never surprised 
but some a little puzzled that sometimes you meet people and they already have the solution. And they're very smart, by the way. They've thought this through and they have a solution or an idea or a strategy. And that's the first thing they want to talk about. But it's funny. The solution or the strategy doesn't always match the problem that the organization or the other people in the room have in mind. So I try and spend a lot of time telling people, stop telling me about your solution. We'll get to that. But first, let me educate me about the problem so I'll be better positioned to appreciate what effect your solution will have. So I always think about the problem, then the solution. That's one of the things I do all the time. And so, you know, who in a business organization today, I think I would say everyone, but I'd love to get your lens on this, right? Who in a business organization needs to work on communication? It's a good question. And as I said earlier, it's misunderstood. Most people think, well, the person who speaks in communication is the person who's giving a keynote at a sales conference or is the spokesperson for the product or has to speak to a team meeting. Now, it goes without saying all those people could use help. But my view is anybody who is engaging with other people on a product, on an idea, on a strategy, whether you're in HR or manufacturing or you're in a technical lab, if your job is to share your thinking with somebody else, so that's most people, you ought to actually practice this. Because there is a huge difference between the really, really smart, able person who knows how to share ideas with a larger audience and the really, really smart person who has never figured out how to get other people excited about their idea. So my short answer, Lakeisha, is this is a mostly neglected skill. People think about, hey, I need to learn how to be a better manager or I need more time management, or I need to improve my presence. All those are important, but I think at one level, they are a function of how well can I share what I'm thinking in a concise and compelling way. Spot on, right? I mean, I absolutely agree that communication is the number one leadership quality that we must all develop because we're constantly talking, we're constantly sharing, we're constantly engaging. And more importantly, to your point, it creates scholarship, right? It creates partnerships. Um, people want to work with you. And so I appreciate um, that your lens on that. Um, I often share with my team is the most important thing we can do is to make sure we're communicating clearly. Um, people understand what we're trying to do and they want to lean in with us and help us drive the outcome. So I believe that communication is an X factor for any leader's growth and development and career development at the same time. So thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. So one of the biggest lessons I learned from you was that as a leader, you'd often say to me, Lakeisha, you are the message, not the slides. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, you're right, Daniel. I remember, I always remind myself of that anytime I'm getting ready to go to do a presentation with Lakeisha, you're the message, it's not the slides. Um, the slides are just a backdrop. So unpack that a little bit. I mean, that, that um, advice has been golden for me, but I'd love for you to share a little bit more um, your logic behind that with the, with the audience. Yeah, so I should make clear, I actually love slides. You know, when I first got into this business, I thought, oh, people use PowerPoint too much as a crutch. They ought to just give a written speech. And that was my speechwriter bias. Mm -hmm. But as I learned, 
because I learned from a lot of great leaders, slides are actually a great discipline. They force you to organize your ideas in a series of small bites. Now, just like you and everybody listening to this, we've sat through slide presentations that are awful, where the slides are ugly, they're crowded, they're unclear, and the person speaking spends most of their time looking and trying to explain the slides. But I've also seen people who, and I think this is your point, who know how to use the slides merely to reinforce their point. Mm-hmm. They're the ones making an argument. And the slides are the evidence, the illustration, the reinforcement of their main points that help me remember it. But I always think if I have to spend more time looking at the slides rather than intently listening to the speaker, there's something wrong. That doesn't mean the slides ought to be unimportant. There are great slides with fantastic visuals or great presentations of data, which are sometimes essential in making a decision. You want to see the numbers. You want to compare a side-by-side. But the takeaway and the interpretation of those slides, that's your job. And so I go back to what you heard from me. You're the messenger. You deliver the message. The slides are simply the evidence, the backup, the visualization of the argument that you're making. Love it. Makes total sense. Total sense. And again, that was game changing for me as we, when we began to work together. That was one of the first things that you said to me, and it's just stuck with me ever since. So, you know, as a woman in corporate America, there are many times I may walk into a room and, and a very important discussion. And, you know, one of the things that you have always helped me to do is to really be prepared for every encounter, whether it's a, a briefing to a senior leader or a presentation I have to give or a customer meeting, right? Just really walking through the process of being prepared um, and to ensure I have the right level of communications to get my point across. And many times I'm not able to always articulate my points because sometimes, you know, people tend to talk over me, right? So in those situations where, you know, we may be outnumbered in the room from a a male to female ratio, and sometimes there's the space isn't created for you to talk, talk a little bit about maybe what you would advise women to do in those situations. You know, I've talked to a lot of women who feel that their views are discounted, that a man talks over them, that they say something and it's sort of ignored, and then a man says effectively the same thing and it grabs attention. And that absolutely takes place. And it's part of, I think, a bias that has existed in the corporate world for a long time that we are overcoming, but slowly overcoming. But I also have seen really effective women presenters and leaders, and really ineffective ones, same title, same status. And so I started to ask hard questions about whether bias in the room or boorish behavior by men or insensitive behavior by men was the fault of their ineffective communications. And Unfortunately, to a lot of the women's audience I've spoken to, they're disappointed to hear me say, I'm afraid sometimes the problem is you, because I've seen enough women in where they're the only woman in the room take over and lead a conversation. And they do it by some of the techniques that I've described. But one thing they always do is that in the first 30 seconds, they do the same thing that an effective male speaker would do. They tell you, 
here's why I'm here and what I'm going to talk about. Here's how long I'm going to talk for. People don't think about that, but people want to know, are, are you going to talk for 10 minutes or are you going to speak for 30 minutes? How long right. do I have to wait for? And then they're going to say, and here's what I want to do at the end of the meeting. I want to reach a decision. I want to get your input. I want to schedule a second meeting. A lot of people get interrupted because they haven't said at the beginning, I'm going to talk for 20 minutes and here's what I'm going to cover. And so nobody knows, hey, I'm seven minutes into this. How much longer is this person going to talk? I don't know. So I better interrupt now. Right. <laughs> okay. My advice to all women is control the conversation at the beginning. By the way, I give the exact same advice to men mm-hmm. who are just as bad at this, by the way. So is there bias against women and hurdles they have to overcome? Absolutely. And we've all lived through it. And seen right. It. But when it comes to communications, you show me a woman who knows how to take control of the conversation, have a structure to her argument, be able to tell me, here's how long I'll talk for, this is what the purpose of the meeting is, and here's what you're going to learn at the end or what we're going to do at the end. You give me something like that, that person will always be an effective communicator in any room. Love it. Love it. Just a very simple blueprint. What I hear from me is structure yields results, take the time to prepare come in and be very clear on why I'm here, what I expect to accomplish and the time I'm going to take, right? So it's really just giving people a guideline for the conversation so they know exactly what to expect. And we all like to be in the know. Yes, exactly. So you spent a lot of time working with Jack Welch, right? Oh my gosh, who's a huge hero of so many leaders across the world. Jack Welch being the former CEO of GE who died earlier this year. You know, can you talk about some of the things that you learned from him over the years? Because you spent a lot of time with him, at least 10 years in association, if not more, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I worked with Jack Welch for about a decade from the very end of his career at GE. And then really his second career after GE, where he became a great speaker, teacher. He actually bought a private university and he wrote books. I still find his book winning, written with his wife, Susie Welch to be one of the best business books. And, you know, I could go on and on of all the things that I learned from Welch. But Welch was a CEO who, by the way, was controversial and will remain controversial even after his death. But there is no question that he was one of the great managers. And from my point of view, one of the great people leaders. Mm -hmm. And he did that because in the end, he believed being with people creating a team, sharing ideas, getting people excited to come to work was the single most important job of a CEO. He hated green eye shades, CEOs who would sit in their office, not come out, not talk to people, not give the passion that they felt for the business to everybody else. And as I said, I could go on, but I think um, I think in time, people will go back and realize how important Welch was. And I'll also say, for those who liked him and even those who didn't like him, I mean, it is incredible how much of modern business is still influenced by the way he thought about bringing excitement to business. And that's true in the United States. It's true in China where Jack Ma of Alibaba, Jack Welch was one of his heroes because he saw here was a way to get excitement about a business. Absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that every B-school in America has a study of Jack Welch, right? And just his 
career and leadership of, of GE and so so much more in the industry. So thank you for sharing that. And again, I think in your work through G100, you've interviewed more than 200 CEOs. And I know they're all equally amazing, right? Tell us about a few that are top of mind for you today. Yeah. I mean, David Rubenstein, who is the co-founder of the Carlyle Group, the private equity group, which is one of the largest private equity groups in the world, may own companies all over the world. You know, they're one, if you took their portfolio, it's one of the largest companies. He runs his own interview show on Bloomberg TV. So he is well known. He is a highly educated, highly articulate CEO who understands not just private equity, but business, people, leadership. I've watched him be interviewed. I've watched him interview other people. And then I have interviewed him as recently as last fall and um, consider him absolutely inspirational. You know, that would be one example. You know, earlier in her career, I interviewed Mary Barra, the CEO of General Motors. She had just been appointed the COO. She's the number two person. And um, I'll tell you quickly one story I remember she told that, you know, the auto industry in the United States is through constant reform. It's been troubled for a decade or two. And she said that there was a 32 page part of the employee handbook on how to dress at General Motors. Wow. (laughs) And she took it and she rewrote it. And the new handbook read, dress appropriately. Okay. I like her simplification. You know, she realized simple is easy. By the way, I mean, there was a punchline to it, which is, of course, when people go out, they go, well, what does that mean? I have someone like, what is dress? People figured it out. Right. <laughs> Dress appropriately. So I think that I love listening to her. When she came, I love watching her now uh, handling the tumult and the transformation of the auto industry. Great leader. Love it. Love it. You know, I know you at one point in your career interviewed for a job with Michael Dell. What was that like? You know, I was at a fork in the road in my career and I didn't know Michael Dell, but somehow these recruiters they're very high quality people. Somebody found me mm-hmm. and described a role that I thought was perfect for me. And when I eventually interviewed with Michael Dell, he said, I know what Dell has been for the last 20 years. I mean, in other words, one of the most successful startup companies of all time and a company that people will be writing about for the next 50 years. But he said, I know what it's been for the last 20 years. I need to articulate what it's going to be for the next 20 years, and it's going to be very different. And, you know, in all honesty, I didn't fully understand them. And I had just moved and had to make a family decision about whether it would be right to move to Austin, Texas. And it was absolutely a struggle to make that decision not to go work for him. Mm -hmm. But what I saw was somebody who, first of all, is one of the greatest entrepreneurs of all time an icon in the technology industry, who even, this is almost a decade ago that I had that interview with him. Even then, he understood that technology fast forward was going to be way bigger than the Dell laptops that he was making at the time. And what he has created with VMware and the cloud and reinvented Dell and took it private, now public showed, even back then, he understood that he was going to run an even more complex business, which he has done. So I think he is, again, somebody I had a chance 
to go work with. It just wasn't right at that time. And I knew I was going to miss something from it, but I also learned something from it. Absolutely. And, and of course, I know you still get an opportunity to interface with him through some of your efforts on G100 and some of the, the great CEOs that you have an opportunity to interface with. So thank you for sharing that lesson. I know that had to be a very difficult decision from a career perspective, but I know you believe too that all things work together, right? And so there are a lot of lessons. It sounds like you gleaned a few key learnings from that conversation at a minimum. Absolutely. Yep. So listen, I can talk to you all day about communication and I often do. <laughs> I'm just so excited that I have the opportunity to continue to partner with you, Daniel, and your amazing team at High Lantern Group. And so in closing, I do want to wrap up with my fast five, but I want to ask, is there anything that I didn't ask you or something that you want to share with the audience before we end our time together today? Well, like you, I feel like this is my passion and I could go on and talk about it, but I would just simply reinforce a message you've brought to this whole conversation, which is being a great communicator doesn't mean being a fancy speaker or orator with a British accent. There's lots of those people. What it means is being somebody that somebody else wants to listen to and say, tell me more. Mm-hmm. And that's the person you ought to strive to be. I don't care what your job is, what level you're at. Those are the people in the end who have influence. So all these people are trying to think, how can I be more influential? How can I get my name out there? Start with being somebody who is clear and compelling. And I think that's a great pathway for business. I see it all the time. Those people thrive and have an effect and other people want to listen to them. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And I want to make sure that my listeners can stay connected to you. What are some of the ways that we can connect with you through social media? Absolutely. So first of all, go to our website, highlanterngroup.com, all one word. And when you go there, you can go to our ideas section and see a lot of things we've written, but also subscribe to our monthly newsletter, the High Lantern Group Notebook, where we just suggest six different articles you should read every month. And um, we've been doing it for a decade and have a big subscriber list. And we'd love to have you join us. The group is also on LinkedIn. We show up a few other places, but absolutely come to our website, join our direct newsletter. It's sent by email and um, you can follow up on see any of the past issues on our site. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, listen, let's wrap up with the fast five and I'll say a word or phrase. And you tell me the first thing that comes to mind. What's your favorite food? Skim milk. Sorry, it puzzles everybody, but that's my favorite food. Okay. Is it because you use it as an ingredient in a lot of things? Say more. (laughs) I drink it. I I drink a quarter of it a day. Nobody else understands it, and I love it. I love it. Yep, that's different. But hey, if you like it, we love it, right? (laughs) What's your guilty pleasure if you have any? That's a good question that I wasn't prepared for, but I would say (laughs) my guilty pleasure is an old movie called, oh, now I'm going to forget it. There's an old movie where Nick Nolte is a coach. I think it's called Blue Chips. Uh He's the coach of a college basketball, corrupt coach of a college basketball team, which is supposed to be like UCLA. And he's, um, Shaq is in it. In an early part of Shaq's career, Larry Bird is in it. And it's about a coach who goes around the world and, recruits these players and discovers the corrupt nature of college basketball. It's a bad movie, 
But anytime it's on, I watch it. Oh my gosh. I think I've missed that. I've got to go find that. Thank you. <laughs> Some of my favorite players are in that, in that movie. And Nick Nolte has been just, we've watched him for years in Hollywood. So love to catch up on that one. So what's your favorite book or a book you're reading right now? So I always love the books by Anthony Trollope, the British writer, uh, rival to Charles Dickens. And he wrote, I believe, more than 50 novels that were passionately followed and serialized in the 1860s and 70s. And almost any of the Trollope novels I love. And almost every summer I try and um, listen to one of them. But if you want to start on any Trollope novel, I would recommend Framley Parsonage, which is one of his famous books. They're all about the same thing. Marriage, the role of women in Victorian society, and wealth and debt. The Way We Live Now is his most famous book. It's very long. By the way, I listen to them all on Audible. So I'm a big Audible book. Anthony Trollope's Audible series, all fantastic. Awesome. I'll have to check that out. Thank you for sharing that. And I don't think you have a whole lot of time to watch TV, but I'm going to ask anyway. Do you have a current Netflix addiction? I don't. You know, you have to make trade-offs. So my trade-off is somewhat less video, more reading or listening to books on tape. So I don't, any of the big, I've missed like an entire generation of people to mention series to me. <laughs> and then they say, oh, it's in its sixth season. And I haven't even, I haven't even heard of it. <laughs> right. So I'm probably like the worst person. Uh, to make Netflix recommendations. I did watch The Crown. I love The Crown, by the way. I'm a bit of an anglophile, so I did love The Crown. So I hope they come back for, you know, season four. Absolutely. So I know right now we're in lockdown, but, you know, if uh, we ever get out of it, any place on the map that you and your family are looking to travel to for a vacation? You know, my bucket list, not so exotic, but I've never been to Japan. Mm-hmm. And I, of all the places in the world, I really want to spend time in Japan. I've read about it. I actually like Japanese movies and, you know, impossible to understand the culture and history of Japan if you don't speak Japanese, mm-hmm. but love Japanese food, fascinated by Japan in history, which, by the way, crosses over American business, modern American business history. It's impossible to understand Nike or the semiconductor industry without understanding the role of Japan. So one of these days when things get back to normal, I'm going to take my family there. I've only been through there a couple of times, but I've enjoyed uh, the cultural experience and learning about the food and the people. So wonderful. Thank you so much, Daniel. I really appreciate our time together. Look forward to connecting again soon. Fantastic. Great to speak with you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Roar. Tune in next time for more awesome talks with people at the top. Don't forget to subscribe and share so you're the first to know when our newest episodes are available. Until next time, 